0: I can't understand why you put that man on, on that wonderful station that you have. My husband Charles and I, whenever he comes on, why, well, we just, we just turn her to another station. Signed, a John Gambling fan for many, many years. Oh, don't. Bring it up. No, you never take it out. Why, you're acting like one of our summer help here. Why, well, one guy threw the entire transmitter off the air. All I called for was a Segway the other night. Everything went off the air. He managed to turn CBS television off. He turned off the entire electrical power of Danbury, Connecticut, too, while he was at it. And, uh, <laughs> Hello, test. Hello. Ho. There. Wait a minute. we got all kinds of homes here. There we go. That's better. Uh, hey, listen! I saw just a fantastic uh, sight. Uh, of course, we're living in the age today of total vanity, right? And uh, I mean, vanity—vanity uh, vanity makes uh, men do many things. For example, uh, vanity makes a man feel that he's a universal critic. Uh, I think uh, vanity is what's producing all, all the amateur politicians and the, the, you know, <laughs> amateur everything. See, but that's all—that's another side of vanity, and that's certainly not the Saturday Night side. I saw a, a groovy moment uh, here a couple of days ago. Now, you got the scene, okay? I'm walking west on 46th Street. Now, this was at the key uh, dynamic Madison Avenue man part of the afternoon. This is when all the guys are coming home from the lunch, or they're all, you know, they're all coming back to the office reeling back from, uh, <laughs> you know, from 28 martinis and the whole bit. And uh, I'm walking west on 46th Street, and I have just left uh, one of these uh, kind of boring official-type lunches. Boy, I'll tell you, they're, 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 I don't know whether, whether lunches are getting more boring or official-type things are getting more boring. <laughs> There's really a nothing like. I wish I had a dollar for every uh, official lunch I've attended that led absolutely nowhere. Uh, except maybe a $75 check for somebody who picked it up on the expense account. But nevertheless, I'm walking west. Now, this is a great street, 46th Street. Uh, In fact, there's uh, there's two good streets in New York that, for a man of my particular bent, uh, are always exciting streets. 45th Street and 46th Street. Now, for one thing, 45th Street has on it Harvey Radio, and you know, when you walk west from Fifth Avenue, you go toward Sixth Avenue. There's Harvey Radio, and then it has Lafayette, it has Heath Kit, and uh, you can go in that. Yeah, you look in the window and you see all this great stuff, and, and uh, it's it's uh, you know it restores one's senses. It's just like uh, uh, when you pick up a copy of Field and Stream. The guys in Field and Stream are always going to the Grand Tetons or the uh, Colorado River Basin to restore their tissues. Well, to a true electronic man, you restore your tissues by standing for maybe a couple of minutes in front of the Harvey radio window. And just looking. You're not going by. You just look, see. And then you move on down a little bit. You look in the window, midway radio. You See, you stand there. I like to just look at a 250-watt uh, amplifier, push-pull triodes. You know, just a big baby. Day. Just look at it. And, then, <laughs> of course, uh, every man has his own aesthetics. Well, I, I, I like 45th Street. Now, 46th Street is another type of street. Uh, they have a, for example, they have a couple of uh, shoe stores there that absolutely must make shoes for elves. They do not make them for males <laughs> or people. And uh, I like to look at that. I look in the window there, and they got a couple of art stores and stuff. Well, I am walking along 46th Street sort of half-dreaming, see? Little chee chee, chee, chee. You know that when your head is turned off? Ninety-seven percent of the time, the average man walks around, and uh, the only thing that's moving are his feet, uh, if that, maybe his pancreas is working at half mast. And uh, I'm, I'm in this uh, quiescent state. Say, I'm walking, and this is a dangerous time, friends. This is the time when you can walk right into something great, because <laughs> you're open. Say, it's Forty uh, Sixth Street. And I'm looking at the Elf Shoes. Tee-tee-tee. I am killing time. I've just left this dull lunch, and I'm trying to get rid of the, the remains of what was it, the fillet of soul that uh, was kind of fermented when I got it. Bored out of my skull. When all of a sudden, I see coming towards me a true male American type of the 20th century, the epitome. He is wearing Edwardian garb. He is dressed to the nines. Wasp waist. He's got one of these fluffy shirts, you know, with the big white things at the top, with the cuffs that come down, with the little uh, uh, agate uh, cufflinks. He is, I mean, he's right out of the best section of Barney's, you know. Very, he's walking along, and it's jet black. Looks like it's made out of velvet, see. And the sun was behind him. Remember, I'm looking west. Here he comes striding out of the west, see. He's walking, walking east towards Fifth Avenue. I see this guy, see. And he's got this alligator briefcase and I suddenly see something else. He is truly an all-American male. Truly. Ah, yes. Style is all. Fenty. All-American. Not only a male, he's an all-American people of our day. Have you noticed the commercials? Forever insistent that hair is the most important thing in this man's world today, and certainly in a chick's world. I mean, if they eliminated hair overnight by some magic can twist of God, just poo, no hair. When well, do you realize that almost the entire broadcasting industry of every television network in the world will go out of business? Hair, between hair and beer, it keeps us afloat. Bring it on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not to mention those magnificent uh, portraits of beautiful summertime weather, where the sun is shining and these two people are are growing more beautiful and younger and healthier by smoking cigarettes as fast as they can. Guys, right, you want to know what this all-American male was doing? Well, he came walking towards me, and I, I I instantly reset that. We're going to need that. I instantly spotted something strange about him. From the sun at his back. I tried to figure it out. It just hit me, because my, remember, my mind is out to lunch. See, it's not it's not focusing or concentrating just see this a little thing says he's wearing a beanie he's wearing a beanie well my mind didn't didn't send any more messages Just that he's wearing a beanie see well i went a a little further then suddenly it, at that point you see my reflection my reaction time was about like maybe 10 15 minutes uh it says he's wearing a beanie Well, the other side of my mind, which is the intelligence side, says, so what? He's wearing a beanie. That's the observing side of my mind. Which does nothing but observe and passes along the information to headquarters. Now, it's up the headquarters, down in your brain, to make the information into something meaningful. Right, friend? That's where a lot of us have trouble. (laughs) In that little department. And so, this uh, uh, little information, he's wearing a beanie. And then I look carefully at him. As he passed me, he was wearing the worst toupee I have ever in my life seen. Have you ever seen a toupee so bad it was obscene? It looked like he was wearing a black yarmulke with fur on it. I couldn't believe it. It comes down around like like about a quarter of an inch over the bridge of his nose he, I don't know whether it had been pushed forward by the wind or what, but it's hanging down there like that. and went back around the back of his head and clung to the top there, like, a, like well, almost like a catcher's mitt. See, it's laying on the top of his head. Well, and here he is. He's with this uh, fantastic shirt with the fluffy collar, and he's wearing the wasp-waisted velvet coat with the silver buttons. He's got the little elf shoes, you know, with the buckles on it. The whole bit. He's right out of, you know, he's right out of it, man. Right. And I turn and I look at him, and as he's going away, it was even sadder. For some reason or other, the toupee was sort of cocked up in the back. The wind had blown it up in the back, and you could see a strip of his bald spot under his toupee, and then his real hair began underneath it, and it was a different color from the toupee. I said, great, Scott, there is chutzpah. (laughs) That is true chutzpah. (laughs) Chutzpah. (laughs) Well, and so tonight, we salute the American male, ever striving on. Totally oblivious to life, time, and realities. Moving forward. Man striving for the essence of beauty and truth, knowing full well that at the top of the ladder lies oh, the cinderella of existence. Oh, yeah, put it down there. That's just great, Groovy. I, I look and here was what made it even sadder in a way. This guy is walking with it with a with the springy steps. <laughs> I suppose he figured, you know, he looked like one of the Beatles on his day off, say. And he did. He really did look like a beetle on a definite off day. So he's walking towards... <laughs> that wasn't bad, was it? He's walking towards Fifth Avenue. And I noticed, so I turned around. See, I turned around and looked at him, naturally. And, of course, it was a little crowded sidewalk. And I noticed everybody he walks past turns around and looks. It was like there was a wake behind him, see, of people boggling. <laughs> What a toupee! What a rug! I'll tell you, I never saw anything like it. You know, I've never seen a good toupee in my life. Well, I'm going to tell you, uh, this is not a—you a, know—this is not going to be a show about toupees. But uh, <laughs> I, one of the worst things that ever happened in my life, just terrible. You know, I don't think embarrassing moments that happen to you, where you're the star, are as really preferably embarrassing as when you are the witness to an embarrassing moment when somebody else is involved. How is this? Do you you agree with that or not? I don't know. This is just the thing I just, you know, just happened to hit me that, that some of the worst moments I've ever had were when I saw somebody else have a terrible time. Whereas... When I'm myself having a terrible time, I'm usually having such a terrible time that I don't have time to get embarrassed, you know, like when my pants are falling off at the Le Marmaton or something like that. You know, you're having an awful... Day. Like the time I went with the salesman and that we stopped at the uh, at the checkout place. That You know, you check your hats, and I opened up the package and it whipped open, and here was this terrible package he'd given me to carry that was a bath rug, you know, a, a, <laughs> a rug for the bathroom, you know, a mat, bath mat. It was made out of sponge rubber, but it was in the shape of well, uh, let's put it this way: a, a very copious collection of superbly endowed and realized mammary glands. <laughs> you ought to stand in the middle of one of the best French restaurants in New York with a with a bath mat that's about 17 feet square. That's you know just a terrible moment. But I was so frantically trying to get that thing rolled up and back in a paper that I didn't have time to be embarrassed. I was a little shocked, but not embarrassed. Well, one of the worst things that ever happened to me in the way in the way of uh, embarrassments, just terrible. Now I, I'm so embarrassed I can't even talk about it, already, even now at this point. All right, I'll tell you what happened. I'm I'm here at the station. See, this is a big building here, and uh, it's 25, 28 stories high. It's right in the middle of the uh, Times Square, garment district type, you know, right on Broadway. Millions of people come in and out of the elevators all day long, and very official people ranging all the way from presidents of corporations down to, you know, guys that are delivering blimpies. And it's a tremendous... (laughs) Oh, yeah, nothing... Oh, well, listen, one of the great moments here at the station is when the blimpy man arrives. I have seen grown men cry. Uh, It's worse than waiting for Godot. And uh, I have... Really, I have seen grown engineers just absolutely in tears when it was announced that the blimpy man is not coming. I've seen it. I have seen it, friend. <laughs> I mean, uh, Now, for those of you who don't know what the blimpy is, <laughs> the blimpy base, uh, this is a kind of a heaven of, of uh, slavs. I mean, people love these gigantic sandwiches with the goo dripping out of them. But uh, that's another story. But I'm in the, in the elevator. And, by the way, some of my great moments in life have been spent in elevators. And so uh, I'm up on the 24th floor, which is way up in the building. And I get in the elevator. It's two other people. I do not know who they are. We get in the elevator, and you know how uh, how uh, strangely, uh, how can I put it, uh, uh, stiff and dignified people are in elevators. They, it's more than stiffness. It's a kind of a, a, a sense of uh, of a violated privacy. Uh, a kind of uh, everybody's uh, pretending not to look at anybody else, and you keep your voice low, and people uh, all sort of uh, look the other way, and. And there's always one or two guys telling dirty stories in the back and yelling, and, and everybody looks the other way. Well, anyway, I'm in the elevator. Everything's cool. And I'm with the two other men. We go down to the 23rd floor. A lady gets on. Now there's four of us in the elevator, see? Myself, this lady, a very distinguished-looking lady with a flowered print dress and a silver hair. And now we go down to the 19th floor, and two beautiful chicks get on. Now we're beginning to have our little crowds. It's a nice little crowd. We're all standing there, all looking front. Now remember, when you're in an elevator, you all look front. The elevator stops on the 14th floor, and there is a very, very dignified-looking couple, a woman who has a printed dress, and she's got a beaded bag, and her husband, who is wearing a very snappy summer straw hat and an Italian silk suit, one of these shiny, beautiful suits, and... And uh, the two of them just looked great, you know, tanned, bronzed. And instantly through your mind went this thing. Now, there is a really distinguished couple. She steps into the elevator. He steps into the elevator, and he was very courtly. He sort of nods to everybody. He takes off his straw silk hat. He whooped like that. Off comes the Italian straw. And in the straw hat is a toupee takes it right off, and he didn't know it. We all saw, everybody in the elevator, except the lady he was with who was in front of him, saw this toupee come right off on his straw hat. And you could see the hair stay. He's holding a toupee, and he's holding it. You know how a, a guy kind of holds it uh, down around his uh, waist? He's holding a cap and looking very, very... Uh, he's nodding to people. He had no idea his toupee was off, and it was being held out in front of everybody in the hat. Well, all of us stood like this. (laughs) Not one. And I forever, I forever, I gained a little more appreciation and a little more, uh, shall I say, a little more respect for my fellow man. Nobody laughed. We just stood there. Maybe we should have laughed. I don't know. Maybe in light of what subsequently happened, maybe we should have laughed. We went all the way down to the ground floor. We all spewed up. Everybody's all stiff. They've seen a terrible moment. And here's this distinguished-looking gentleman. His toupee is in his straw hat. We get down on the ground floor, and we all go pouring out. He takes his hat, and he starts to put it on. And with that, the toupee falls out of his straw hat, bounces on his head, and falls right on the floor in front of these two beautiful, voluptuous 19-year-old chicks. Oh, what a terrible moment. I just went right on to the chock full of nuts. Knowing, you know, that disaster can strike man no matter where he is, no matter how hard he works. The best laid plans of mice, men, and and, uh, Mr. Chucky's toupee emporium wind up on the floor just like all the rest of the plans of the pharaohs, Aristophanes, all the greats that go all the way back to the very beginnings of time, and the wind blowing through the bulrushes. It's all the same of wax. That I saw. I saw that, and you're going to say I made it up. I'm sorry, I did not make it up. In fact, uh, from that day on, the elevator operator, that's when we had operators here. Did you remember when we had elevator operators? From that day on, the elevator operator who saw it, see, he said to me afterwards, he says, you know, that... I can't face that man. He has some big important office over right there on one of the floors here, and he says every time he gets in, he says I can't keep my eyes from going to the top of his head, where he's got this beautiful silver toupee. See, he's got a silver one. It looks like uh, you know he's got. <laughs> and he said, you know, it's just terrible. And, uh, of course, uh, these these uh, these things that uh, I can already see the angry letters that I'm going to get now. But uh, I've never you know toupees. Uh, funny thing, I, I remember a friend of mine one time got a toupee. This guy was on television, and uh, he he was a newscaster on TV. It's probably one of the greatest moments ever seen on television of its type. I, I don't, I, I can't imagine anyone topping this thing. But he's sitting on his show. Now it was of an official type show, you know, like uh, like uh, oh. Uh, Harry Reasoner does it, or uh, like Frank McGee in the news, that kind of thing, where they come on for 15 minutes to have the films, and the guy's all made up. He looks very official. Well, George was a strange guy. <laughs> I, won't, I won't tell you what his last name was, but George is a strange guy. And that afternoon, he had got his new toupee. Well, he had gone all around the station. and a, it, By the way, it was a six-station network he was on. He was He was on throughout the Midwest, so a lot of people saw this. George went around the station, and he was showing everybody his toupee. And, uh, he'd gotten fitted for this thing, and he went to some place. I don't know where they wove it and everything else. So they put the toupee on, and he was showing everybody. He was like a kid with a new toy, see? And he was showing everybody how to put it on. He had the, he he showing the stuff. I don't know. They used some kind of glue or hooks and all kinds of things, and he's putting the toupee on. And, and the, so he went around all afternoon sticking his head into offices, and he would look in the office. and He'd say, "Hi." Uh, They'd say, uh, well, hi, George. Well, uh... Hi! Well, yeah, hello, George. Well, uh, don't you notice anything, huh? No, what's the matter? What's up, uh... Look, look, my hair! Oh. You got a haircut. No, I... Look, my toupee! See, look, you didn't even know. Oh, Groovy, you didn't even notice it. Wow, see... Well, he became extremely... All afternoon, he's sitting there with this thing. I remember looking at him in the news department. He's playing around with it, you know, and he's messing with it. Because for years, George had been totally bald. And now all of a sudden, he's got a rug on the top of his head. And apparently, you know, this, this must be quite a traumatic shock. It must be the reverse of a guy whose foot's been amputated. And you know, he keeps feeling his foot. Oh, well, yeah, this is true. And uh, I've heard guys say, the toupee-type guys... That when you get a toupee on, one of the worst things in the beginning is that uh, you're not used to having hair on the top of your head. You keep, you're, you're very conscious. of it. You put your hand up there, you're know, grabbing all of it and fooling around. Well, he keeps messing with the hair. Well, so George, now it is time to go on the air. And so George has got his new toupee on. He's all excited. Six station networks, saying been, <laughs> He's sitting in the studio and they're concentrating the camera on him. Well, the time for the show to come comes. And I was the announcer, by the way, on the show, so I was very deeply involved in the whole situation right from the very beginning. And so I'm sitting over at my little desk, and it was like the Ed McMahon bit, and and it was sponsored by a beer. So I said, Hugh the man's beer, brings you the 6 o'clock news. And here he is, Big George, with tonight's news. And then George comes on, he gives the headlines like, uh, uh, you know, who shot John? Uh, Charlie Brown kicked a field goal. And other... Big news stories in just a moment, but first now, a word from our sponsor, and that comes back to me. Well, now I'm sitting over there doing the spot, see, and I notice George is fooling with his toupee. He's off camera. I fooling with his toupee, see. He's scratching around with it, and he's fluffing it up, you know, and now he starts the news. And now here he is, big George and the news. Good evening, friends. Tonight in Washington, it was announced that uh, Who Shot John occurred. And the president made the following statement in connection with the Who Shot John affair. And here is a a direct news film from Washington. And now comes the film. George messes with hair again. See, he's off camera. He says, that was a film of the Who Shot John affair. And now we'd like to talk about the Charlie Watanabe field goal. Blah, 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 blah. He's messing with the... Now he's on the air messing with his hair. He goes up in his hand he's reading. All of a sudden, George, in the middle of his newscast, says... Okay, takes his headgear right off. (laughs) It was bugging him. Takes his toupee off right on the air. Says, uh, that's enough of that. That goes right on with the news. (laughs) He's dumbfounded, George. (laughs) Pulled his toupee off. Went off. And then the next night, he says, uh, I've received a lot of letters from people who say that I look a lot better without my toupee. And I want to thank you, and I feel a lot better without my toupee. Never wore it again. Well, you met him. You met him one night. You don't remember it, but you did. Uh, why the dumb look? Don't you remember meeting him, George Palmer? Oh, good. Now you know. But uh, anyway, these uh, toupees are bad news. And uh, I, I've often, no, I've often wondered <laughs> about women who uh, who wear other artificial things. Are they conscious of them? Uh, are they? I don't know. It's just <laughs> you know, like men of the toupees, I don't know. Uh, you know, it seems, and I don't know whether it is my imagination, but it seems to me that people change immediately following uh, Labor Day. There's a different atmosphere. Do you notice that, Skip? It's a curious difference. uh, What it is, I don't know. But uh, Labor Day has some strange memories for me because I lived in a town that was and is a totally dedicated mill town. Now, in a town like New York City, uh, Labor Day doesn't really mean much because mo- there aren't many really genuine laboring types in New York. City. So there's a lot of people at work and have a lot of jobs, and sure, there's a lot of laboring people in New York. But the population, by and large, it's a sort of a massive office. Uh, Labor Day in a town like Detroit is very different from, say, Labor Day in Passaic. Much different scene. And th- this time of the year was always a bad scene for me. In fact, uh, when I was in high school... I played football, and right about this time of the year, we were just at the end of the fall and or summer training. Uh, you know, you, you read in the paper about the Jets are training. What do you think happens in that scene? You read about uh, Rutgers football team uh, in uh, practice sessions. Well, what happens is the temperature is 107, and uh, you're lying out on your back in a field with your feet up in the air, and you've been kicking them like that now for the last three weeks, while a guy walks up and down and stands on your stomach occasionally and yells at you. So, you know, it's, it's a drag. And then at the end of that, half of the guys get cut anyway. <laughs> they say, I'm sorry, you don't get a jersey this year. You know, that's one of the great traumatic moments. Did you, uh, I don't know whether women ever know this thing or not. I, I doubt it very much, because sports is not as big in the lady-type world as it is in the male world. But this is the time of year when a lot of guys are getting cut from football teams. And do you know how it actually works? You ever actually see it happen? Well, the cut works this way. In case you're a sport fan, you may not have seen this side of sports. That the cut usually takes place right around Labor Day. Because almost invariably the first games that most high schools and colleges play are... Very shortly after Labor Day, usually the first week, the next two weeks, there will be a couple of games, and then it will slowly pick up momentum until finally all the teams are playing. But this is it, man. They are pairing down to the squad. And they don't have time to mess around with the dildocks that are out there trying to make it. See, to get getting in the way of the real ball players. And so here's the way the scene actually occurs. And this is a truly American traumatic scene. And I was, I was involved in it. And I should tell you, maybe that's, maybe that's the story that I should tell you tonight. The moment, the terrible moment of the cut. And it had happened, actually it happens long before the actual moment of the cut. But early in the spring, and, uh, I think we better salute this as, a, as an American, as an American uh, phenomenon. It's true, American. I don't think they have things like this in Yugoslavia or Bulgaria. I mean, it just isn't the same. It can't be. You got it now? It is now two days before the end of school in June. The sun is shining. A whole beautiful summer is ahead. Hopes are rising higher and higher and higher in the American breasts. Especially in the high school. We're getting away from it all now for at least three months. And on the bulletin board appeared this sign. All those who wish to try out for the football team, put your names on the enclosed piece of paper. And I'm looking at it. It is my sophomore year in high school. This is the year you go out for football. I have played on the freshman football team. It is now time to sign up for the big one. I put my name down. Flick puts his name down. Schwartz puts his name down. And the summer began. Tennis. The beach. Youth, joy, truth, and beauty. Drive-ins. Chicks. Chicks. Drive-ins. Chicks, chicks. Okay. <laughs> and one day, it came. In the mail, each one of us got a card. It was just a plain old mimeograph card. It said, Somebody had written our name in on the blank. It said that, Dear Gene Shepard, or Dear Schwartz, or Jerry Flick, football practice begins Monday at 11 a.m. A report at the high school gymnasium at 10.30. Be prepared for a three-hour session the first day. Signed, the coaching staff. Well, all the rest of the kids are out having fun, see. They're going to places like the beach. They're, you know, having fun. But, and the idea of football practice beginning is fun in itself, just the idea of it, you see. Because by that time, it was uh, the beginning of August. By that time, you're getting a little tired of vacation, you know. You're, you're being at the edge. And so immediately, of course, I go over and see Schwartz and Flick, and oh, boy, they're all excited. Now, neither Flick nor Schwartz had gone out for football before. I knew what was about to happen, so I'll clue you in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I was a veteran of the scene because I'd already been out for freshmen at this particular school and had been out there and played and so forth. So I knew the coaches, I knew the whole scene. But Flick and Schwartz were so excited, and I didn't have the guts to tell them. So a couple of days later, it is now Monday, and we are at the school. Have you ever, you know, you go to school in the summertime? It's a whole different atmosphere at school. It's uh, it's, uh, it's just like. Uh, well, it's a different thing than it is in the winter. It, it's a, there's a different smell even in the air that they've been painting the school, and there's only been summer school classes. A few girls are there who are working in the office. So we go down to the gym, and sitting on the floor, now here is the way a football team actually begins. Now, I've never heard anybody talk about this. I've never even seen articles about it. But here's the way a team actually begins, and this is a varsity football team so-called, here's the gym, and there's about, oh, I would say probably at the time when we arrived, which was about quarter to 11, something like that, there were about 75 kids all milling around, just, you know, sort of walking around the gym floor, and you could automatically, instantly tell that some of those guys belonged there. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a couple of guys, six foot seven, two hundred and ninety pounds, and they just got that evil look of uh, you know of, of uh, human fire plugs. they're walking. They they're they're already the veterans, see, and they were sort of everybody was gassed, see, because because uh, we knew them, you know, there were stars, famous guys. One guy was All State half-back last year, and there they are, see, and they're hanging around in their own little corner, They're hitting each other with the sweaters with the big letters and all all the stripes and all. And then there's the rest of them whole bunch of guys sitting around, just sort of hanging. If guys you'd never seen before, because it's a big school, it's three thousand, you know, maybe three thousand five hundred students. Well, now it is eleven o'clock and more guys have come in. There's roughly now a hundred kids in this gym. The door opens and in walks the coach. The coach. He's wearing a T shirt. He's wearing a pair of shorts. He's got on a pair of tennis shoes. And he's got a crew cut. He walks in, and he's with his two assistants, one of whom, by the way, taught history, but who also had been an All-American football player at Duke or Iowa or someplace like that. And so now the three of them walk in, and they have got clipboards and stuff. They've got all kinds of papers. And they're not paying no attention. And immediately we all start, you know, uh, showing off, guys (coughs) like... Guys are bulging their muscles and walking around. Hey, Charlie, they hit each other on the elbow. You know, hey, wow, well, wow. Well, little Indian wrestling, say, so they're paying no attention. And all of a sudden, the coach takes a whistle out of his pocket, and he blows the whistle. So, are you guys. All right, all you guys, quiet down in the back there. We don't have all day. Now, shut up. It's a very different kind of teacher. This is not like uh, being in Miss uh, McCullough's English class. All right, you guys, shut up now. I want all you guys that are not and did not and have not played on a varsity football team last year to sit down in the gym floor right now. Sit down on the floor. And we all sit down on the floor, save those selected the golden ones. And they move to the back. And they're standing up next to the wall, sort of leaning on the back of the wall. And all the rest of us are sitting now. The coach goes on, and this is the first speech. Some of you guys are going to play football for the school. The rest of you ain't. Now I don't want none of you guys to feel that uh, you've been discriminated against. It's just that some guys got it, some ain't. And we're going to find out who's got it. Now, a lot of you guys got it and don't know it. A lot of you guys think you got it. You ain't. We'll find out. And now I see something next to me. Flick is kind of getting lower and lower, see. Because we've been, you know, uh, we're the type of guys that play pass tag and all that stuff. And all of a sudden it's very formal. See? And incidentally, this is very different from freshman ball, too, which was far more or less formal, informal. But this is something else. All right, now, I want all you guys to come in past the window over here, give them your size. You will be issued equipment. You are charged for that equipment. Any of that stuff that's stolen, you pay for it. And at the conclusion of the practice sessions the last week of August, we will issue the Vosity suits. And we start lining up. You know, that excitement, that fantastic moment of getting a football suit issued to you, a real one. And so they start handing out the suits. Now, these suits they handed out were the suits that had been the regular varsity football suits of, say, like two years before. Now they only use them for practice. And so they give each one of us a pair of pants. And we get the jersey, the purple jersey with a big number on the back. Each one of us is given a headgear, you know, with a great big thing, the big nose guard in the front, and the shoes. And now we're all sitting around putting them on. It was fantastic, the transformation. It's a fantastic moment. There have been a whole bunch of kids, and now all of a sudden, everybody loses his identity. And they begin to look like football players. It's like George A. always says get the costume, and the part will play itself. Maybe. It depends who's inside the costume. And so we start putting on the suits, and we're all, you know, just great feelings. And so with that, after everybody's all suited up, there's about a hundred kids all sitting there suited up. That tremendous crowd of kids. The whistle blew. The assistant coach said, all right, let's go out on the field. And we ran down through this long corridor leading into the gym, and you could hear these thousands of shoes. go, Football spikes. And I'm beginning to run. You know, I feel real groovy. I've got on these... Pads and the helmet, the headgear, and the whole bit—we're running out and out into the sun. And now we spread out over the field. They throw about twenty-five footballs out, and everybody just sort of tossing them back and forth, just casually playing catch with the footballs and throwing them. Back. It's great, you know—it's it's wonderful. Everybody's equal at this moment, just tossing the ball. The whistle blows, and again. Huffine says, all right, you guys, we are now beginning to take real serious looks at some of you already. We have already made some decisions. Hey, what do you mean, decision? We have been on a minute and a half. <laughs> this is exactly what he said. We have made some decisions. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because of this reason. Everything you do out here in the football field is going to be watched. We're not here to play. We're going to win. Some of you guys know about winning. The rest of you guys is losers. I can see losers all over the place here. I can see losers everywhere I look. Now, you don't have to be a loser. It's up to you. If you want to be a loser, you be a loser. But you ain't going to lose here. My job is on the line. I got kids. I'm not going to have no losers playing for me. Any of you guys know you're losers? You can leave right now. We're just... You know, we just, just, just come out, you know? And then they began to work. We are laying on our backs and we're doing the bicycle. Try that for a half an hour under a broiling August sun wearing a football suit. Now we're doing one of the worst exercises I ever in my life. If, 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 I, ever, if I ever want to torture a man, I can't think of any better torture than the rocking chair. Do you know what the rocking chair works like, friends? The rocker? Well, you lay flat on your gut, right? You stretch your stomach muscles as hard as you can stretch them. Put your hands above your head and stretch them all the way out and up. In other words, you're arching your back backwards. Your feet are up in the air, and you just rock back and forth on your stomach. And they say, rock! One! Two! Back! One! Two! Two! Come on, arch that back, you slob! One, two... You just keep this up until finally waves of pain start coming up through your gut. And they start coming out your ears. And the sun is beating down. And off in the distance you can see... You can see these white-clad figures of of other people playing tennis. Girls. You see a car going by and a bunch of guys are off their way to the drive-in to eat cheeseburgers and to drink black cows. And there you are, going back and forth in your gut looking down at the sand, back and forth, back and forth. And then they do uh, another little thing. Oh, this is a beauty. When the two two football players grab, one guy grabs the other guy's waist. Listen to this little killer. You ready for this one? You put your arms around the other guy's waist, and the coach, and wait, he weighs 240 pounds, right? You put your arms around his waist, and you stand there with your legs spread wide apart, and he stands sort of like an attention. And with that, the coach says, All right, at the count of one, lift them. At the count of two, put them down. At the count of one, lift them. At the count of two, put them down. You will keep that up until I stop counting, right? All right, let's go. One! <laughs> You're lifting the slop. You're holding them up. Two! <sighs> One! Two. Have you ever tried lifting a blocking back for, like, say, ten straight minutes up in the air and putting them down? It got to the point where the sky was revolving around in the air above me. I mean, everything was spinning. I was so exhausted. And then he lifts you. Up you go for half an hour. Well, three hours later, me and Flick. And Schwartz are sitting in the dressing room, one shoe off. I was so tired, I couldn't even. I'm seriously, I couldn't even take my socks off. I'm just sitting there, sweat pouring. And the coach is walking back and forth with his clipboard, saying things to the other coaches. The next day, we arrive at eleven o'clock. Each one of us so filled with pain that. Even now, I feel the terrible pain that that, that just went through my body all night and all through the next morning and back out at 11. Five minutes after we get out there, I'm laying on my gut. All right, rock! One, up, two, rock, back! Two weeks of nothing but doing the rocker, of lifting up a tackle, of doing the uh, arm lock, of doing the body press, of doing the... uh, The double, oh, another beauty, is to get down, squat down on your haunches and do the Australian hop. Have you ever tried that one? Well, here's what you do. He says, at the count of one, squat down with your knees apart as far as you can get them apart, your feet together as close as you can get them. Put your rump right on your heels, right? Squat down. And then at the count of one, hop upwards in the air, and at the count of two, hop again. At the count of three, keep hopping until I stop saying hop, right? Okay, let's go. Hop, one, hop, two, hop, three, hop, four, hop, three, hop, four, hop, five, hop, one. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You should you suddenly start feeling your calves of your leg are made out of python snakes. And they're coiling around and they're biting each other. You talk about... Have you ever had a cramp skip, a real cramp? Well, if you can imagine both of your legs caught in completely paralyzed, complete, total... It's like somebody has plugged a 220-volt electrical circuit right into your backbone and turned it on. Hop, 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 hop. But do you know that after half an hour of that one, one time, three guys could not straighten up. They carried them into the dressing room in an l shape with their feet up under them. They looked like they were about to lay eggs. They just grabbed them. <laughs> they were so cramped up. When we kept this up for two solid weeks, and at the end of two weeks, I'll tell you, I can't, I can't describe the change that has come over us. Surly, sullen. They did it for that reason. Everybody's bugged. And then that great moment, two weeks of working out, and the great moment came. It is now a Monday morning. We are assembled on the football field, ready to do the hop, ready to do the cross cut. When the coach says, all right, you guys, a lot of you guys is now falling out, right? We've already lost 28 guys who couldn't take it. 28 guys that started out just two weeks ago ain't with us now. I told you there were losers. We're going to find out more losers today. We're going to separate into two squads. All you guys with the white jerseys are the B squad. You guys with the purple jerseys are the A squad. Now, that don't mean you're on the varsity or nothing. We're just calling it A and B. It could be B and A. It don't matter. Today, the A squad will be on the offensive, and the B squad will be on the defensive. Now, we're not going to give you no plays yet. What we want you to do is to line up. Seven men on a side. All you guys that are out for the line. And I want you to charge the seven men opposite you. Knock them down. That's all. Knock them down. We'll come to the plays later.